Warning, this episode contains mature content and is not intended for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In April of 2005, a very good friend of mine was walking through a Costco parking lot with two of her three young children in tow. She was pushing her shopping cart, keeping a close eye on her middle son, four years of age at the time, as he was the most free-spirited and adventurous of them all. In other words, he doesn't always listen when asked to mind his mom. Her attention was diverted in his direction, and in that split-second moment, what she wasn't noticing, a Ford F-150 reversing out of a parking spot right in their direction. Before she could even react, she suddenly saw the rear tire of this truck roll right over her three-year-old daughter. My friend screamed, gaining the attention of the driver of the truck, who suddenly came to a stop, and when he did, my friend could see that her little girl was folded in half at the hips, her thighs pressed up against her chest, and the tire of the truck parked squarely on top of her. If he hadn't stopped in that moment, if that truck had rolled back any further, he would have rolled right over her head. But it stopped, tire pressed up against her little chin. At the time, I was with my parents. They were involved in a small claims lawsuit and the morning my friend's daughter was run over by the F-150, I was in court with my parents there to offer testimony for their case if necessary. When our case was over, I walked out of the courtroom and into the hallway. I glanced at my phone and saw a voicemail from my friend, her voice breaking. Hey, Roseanne, we're at the hospital. Kara was run over by a truck in the Costco parking lot. She's going to be okay. She's just hurt really bad, but she's okay. Call me as soon as you can. This overwhelming fear came over me as I stood in the courthouse. I could not wrap my head around the contents of that voicemail. Run over by a truck? Did I hear that right? In the parking lot? Run over? I rushed out of the court to go be with my friends. Everything did turn out to be all right. Of course, her daughter's little body was broken in several places. Broken pelvis, a broken femur, some broken ribs. But otherwise, miraculously, she was okay. The way her body folded in half under the tire of the truck actually protected her vital organs from being crushed. The fact that the driver reacted and stopped before he rolled over her head was a miracle in and of itself. It also didn't hurt that the vehicle that ran her over was a pickup truck, an empty pickup truck. There were a number of factors that were in play that morning when she was hit by that truck that saved her from being killed that morning. Kara, my friend's daughter, ended up having to be in a full body cast for a couple of months. She had to be carried everywhere. She had to revert back to being in diapers. She had to be moved and shifted around and itched when she felt itchy, fed, bathed, entertained, kept company. Can you guys even imagine, those of you who have children or have been around children, what it must be like for an active three-year-old with two older brothers to have to be resigned to a body cast? And even more so, can you imagine what it's like to actually see a tiny three-year-old body in a body cast? It shatters you. It absolutely shatters you. But I don't have to tell any of you that the human body is an amazing thing. She was down for the count for a few months, but it wasn't much longer that this whole ordeal was a distant memory. I've lost touch with my friend and her family. I know that they've since divorced and moved on to different states, so I don't know. 
but I often wonder if my friend's little girl remembers what happened to her that day. There is another side to this story, and some of you might be thinking what I thought and what many of us thought when this whole ordeal happened. Why weren't you watching your daughter? Why weren't you holding her hand? Why wasn't she in your shopping cart? Where were you, mom, when that F-150 was rolling out of that parking space? Granted, the driver must assume some responsibility for the accident. And from what I was told, he was extremely traumatized naturally. Who wouldn't be? He was in a big truck. Looking in his rear view, he probably wasn't going to see a little three-year-old behind the vehicle. He likely saw my friend walk past and assumed all was clear for backing up and didn't see her child tagging along behind her. However, it was an accident, but I could not help but think these things of my friend. I had my own five-year-old at the time and it's just the thing we do. We hold hands in the parking lot, always. But, of course, I never said those things to her. I'm certain there was enough self-blaming going on, but I admit, I thought them. And deep down, ultimately placed most, if not all, of the blame on her for not keeping her child safe. We don't say these things to our friends, though, especially when we know they're hurting, but we still think them. My friend's mother, the grandmother of the child hit by the truck, she did not hold back. She was going to tell it like it was and there was gonna be no filter. Grandma placed the blame squarely on mom and made no qualms about it. My friend confided in me how hurt it made her feel. And of course, I didn't share the fact that I kind of felt the same way. In the end, it didn't matter because ultimately it was the fault of the driver and that's what my roommate was going to focus on. I imagine she felt a tremendous amount of guilt for what happened, but she was going to be able to quickly shift the blame on the truck driver and that, along with the fact that her little girl survived this, was how she was going to be able to get through this whole thing. It's been a lot of years since I've thought about that accident in the Costco parking lot. It came to my mind when I came up with the title of this episode. It's one of those times when I've had to hold back my judginess and just be there for my friend who needed me. Have you ever caught yourself, even inadvertently or unknowingly, blame someone for causing their own misfortune? particularly if that misfortune was not of their own doing. As much as I'd like to say I never would, or I never have, I know I have. As I've pointed out in the story I opened this episode with, but when it comes to our friends and family, we sometimes hold back our true feelings so we don't hurt someone else's, right? We do have that one friend or that family member that doesn't hold back, that tells it like it is, and it's often at the expense of the feelings of others. I do know that being an avid podcast listener over the past several years, I've experienced a personal shift in how I feel inwardly about certain situations I hear about. I've experienced a kind of renaissance when it comes to how I formulate my opinions when thinking about certain criminal cases or missing persons cases. In the end, nobody deserves to have harm done to them and no family deserves to be left to wonder where their missing loved ones are. And so today, I am going to recount the tale of a woman whose death is destined to remain forever unsolved because our society, our media, in our justice system told her and her family that her death didn't matter because her life didn't matter. In today's episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the victim blame game. 
Victim blaming comes in a variety of forms and is often subtle, even unconscious, us doing this without even realizing it. We hear about victim blaming quite often in the media in serious crimes such as rape and sexual assault. But we can also victim blame for more mundane crimes, like when someone is pickpocketed, but then they're criticized for carrying their wallet in their back pocket. Not everyone who engages in victim blaming explicitly accuses someone of failing to prevent what happened to them. People may not even realize they're doing it. As a rule of thumb, it's worth remembering that anytime you or me or anyone else defaults to questioning as to what a victim of a crime, any crime, could have done differently to have prevented becoming a victim, we are essentially participating in to a varying degree, and perpetuating a culture of victim blaming. One of the biggest factors that encourages victim blaming is people thinking or feeling that people deserve whatever happens to them. It's a really strong need to believe that we all deserve the outcomes and consequences that are dealt to us. People want to view the world as a just and fair place that we are all in control of our own destinies. This is often seen as a strong sentiment in the American culture, living the American dream. You are the captain of your own ship and you decide the course of your life. In other cultures, particularly in areas impacted by poverty or war, it's often felt as though bad things sometimes happen to good people. If you take issue with this idea, then You may look to find a way to justify the bad things happening to supposedly good people. And one way is holding victims responsible for their own misfortune. It's a way to avoid confronting the fact that something unthinkable could happen to you, even if you do everything the right way. When I first brought up the concept of victim blaming as the premise of this story, I'm sure crimes like sexual assault or domestic violence comes to mind. It occurs quite often because that's when it seems to take its worst form. If a person is sexually assaulted, the victim must have made some poor decisions that led him or her to that place. If a husband or wife is being abused by their significant other, he or she must have said or done something to set it off. However, when it comes to other crimes, murders, burglaries, abductions, whatever the crime, Many people tend to go the way of having thoughts of victim blaming. It becomes sort of a defense mechanism to an extent in the face of bad news. These are very likely to be the same people who are able to accept things such as natural disasters as unavoidable events, but feel they have more control over whether they become victims of crimes. They can take those extra precautions. They can be more vigilant and aware for their own personal safety. In turn, they just assume that victims of crimes must have somehow contributed to their own victimization and need to bear some of the responsibility for it. Far too often, we see this type of victim blaming play out in courtrooms. We've all seen it. Defense attorneys putting the character of the victim on trial in an attempt to deflect responsibility for the crime away from their client. One example that came to my mind immediately was the Travis Alexander murder trial. For 18 days, his killer, Jody Arias, sat on the witness stand and attempted to rip Travis's character and reputation to shreds in an attempt to avoid Arizona's death row. She called him an abuser, a sexual deviant, and a pedophile. She went pretty low. Ultimately, she was convicted, but I can't say that her tactic didn't work. Two juries could not agree that Arias deserved to be sentenced to death for the killing of Travis, and she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. What if she hadn't testified at all to those things that she said about Travis? Would the jury not have been able to sway in the slightest to sympathize with her? Who knows? She obviously laid it on pretty thick in order to sway some of the jurors in her favor. 
The victim who was at the center of today's tale was categorically maligned and vilified in the media when she was murdered on a dark side street in Studio City, California on May 4th, 2001. A few weeks ago, when I mentioned to an acquaintance that I was thinking about doing an episode on this particular victim, right away she launched into a tirade about how the victim did this, and she was guilty of that, and she was a terrible person in life who used people and took from people, and on and on and on. I kept cutting her off and telling her, yeah, but you're missing the point. You're not seeing what's at the heart of the story. You're blaming her, but she's the murder victim. Finally, the person I was having the conversation with about this story backed off. And that was pretty much the moment I knew I needed to start a conversation about this. While the person I was talking to was carrying on and on about all the untoward things the victim of the story had done throughout her life, I had to remind her she was shot to death, sitting in a car, on a side street. And as of today, more than 16 years later, her murder is still unsolved. Bonnie Lee Bakley was born in Morristown, New Jersey on June 7, 1956, to parents Edward and Marjorie Bakley. She had three siblings and they were raised by their grandmother in Glen Garner, New Jersey, while her mom operated an antique business in Wharton, New Jersey. Bonnie dropped out of high school at the age of 16 and decided to go to New York City to try her luck at a career in modeling and acting. She attended the Barbizon School of Modeling. Bonnie was ultimately married a whopping 10 times. Her first three marriages in 1971, 1977, and 1984 ended in divorce. The next five in 1998, 1992, 93, 94, and 95 ended in annulments. Her ninth marriage in 1996 ended in divorce, and her 10th and final marriage was in 2000 and lasted until her death in 2001. She had a total of four children. As a side note to a couple of these marriages, her marriage in 1977 was actually to her first cousin and they had two children together. And out of all 10 of her marriages, two of her husband's names were linked in blue and underlined. I know many of you may know who one of them is and I'll get to him in a little bit. But the other link, I was curious. His name was Glenn H. Wolf. And I don't know about you, but I never heard of him, so I clicked. Boy, was I surprised what I found. Glenn Wolf, also known as Scotty Wolf, was a Baptist minister who lived in Blythe, California. He is famous for holding the record for the largest number of monogamous marriages, 29. He makes Bonnie look like an amateur. She was actually number 29 in 1995, but their marriage was annulled, so it technically didn't even count. So he has two number 29s listed, followed by one more at number 30. That lasted until his death in 1997. By the way, of the 30 names listed under his marriages, the only one linked in blue and underlined was Bonnie's. She was his only notable marriage, and it didn't even count in his final tally. Anyway, back to Bonnie. While in New York, struggling with the modeling and acting career, in an effort to support herself, she began a mail-order type of business, sending nude photos of women, including herself, to men. It was also around this time that she would meet her first husband, an immigrant named Evangelos Pollockus. He was desperate to stay in the United States and needed to get married in order to do so. Bonnie agreed to marry him, but it was going to be at a cost. Not long after the two tied the knot, Bonnie had secured the money and ended the marriage, and Evangelos was eventually detained by immigration authorities and deported. Bonnie also ran what were known as Lonely Hearts advertisements. And if you don't know what those are, they're personal ads. 
Kind of like classifieds, but like the name implies, more personal in nature, and they are given the nickname Lonely Hearts Ads. The evolution of the internet has made it a common medium for personals, now called online dating. With the intention of generating friendships and or romantic encounters based on the description of the person posting along with their interests, Bonnie posted ads searching for male companions. After cultivating somewhat of a relationship with the men who answered her ads, she would eventually start asking for money for expenses, bills, or traveling. It was also around this time that Bonnie had gotten married to that first cousin of hers and had her first two children, which her husband mainly cared for while she worked her mail order business. The marriage was volatile, and by 1982, her second marriage would come to an end. Eventually, through all of these various dealings, she was able to afford to purchase a number of houses in Memphis, as well as a house outside of Los Angeles. However, Bonnie was never really able to find any kind of success as a singer, model, or actress. So instead of becoming rich and famous on her own, she decided she was going to turn her sights on marrying someone who was rich and famous. So determined was she to do so, it's been said that Bonnie had an obsession with celebrities. Her strong desire to be a part of the inner circle of the famous, along with the fact that she wasn't getting any younger, was a huge motivating factor for her when she decided she must leave her children in the care of their father and head to Memphis, Tennessee. Her first target, musical artist Jerry Lee Lewis. Bonnie's quick money-making schemes, along with her use of ill-gotten credit cards and identifications, kept her pretty mobile. She had set out to get to Lewis in any way that she could, and had the ability and money to travel to locations where Jerry Lee Lewis would be performing. She reportedly went so far as to bribe travel agents for information about flights he was planning to take, then book seats next to his. Bonnie would often crash parties, show up at performances, and just make herself present in an effort to get close to Lewis. Her stalkery behavior enabled her to finally meet him in person in 1982, and the two developed a friendship. Bonnie's pursuit of Lewis would become one of the most bizarre chapters in her life. She gave birth to a daughter in 1993 and claimed the baby was fathered by Lewis. She even made her way into several tabloid publications, who were more than happy to run the story. She even named the little girl Jerry, J-E-R-I, Lee Lewis. Not only was Bonnie claiming the baby was his, she was also telling anybody who would listen that he was leaving his wife to marry her. DNA tests would later reveal that Lewis was, in fact, not the father. Needless to say, Bonnie and Lewis's friendship ended. And it's even been reported that Bonnie made death threats against Lewis's wife. Eventually, her daughter would be sent to live with Bonnie's other children and her ex-husband. However, this was not the end of Bonnie's pursuit of Lewis. She did continue on, but after a few more years of throwing herself at him, she eventually realized that nothing was going to happen and decided to start making things up between them on her own. She started calling herself Bonnie Lee Lewis and even had holiday cards sent out with the photo of the two of them signed, Happy Holidays, Jerry Lee and Bonnie Lee. Altogether, Bonnie spent over a decade chasing after Lewis. Anybody who knew Jerry Lee Lewis at the time would say that Bonnie was completely delusional about her relationship with him but she was no less imaginative when it came to other more well-known celebrities. Bonnie had either expressed a strong interest in or had claimed to have had encounters with everyone from Elvis Presley and Dean Martin to Red Fox and Gary Busey to former televangelist and Jerry Lewis relative Jimmy Swigert. According to some sources, her address book had nearly 20 celebrities she intended to chase after including a phone number for Robert Redford in New York and Sylvester Stallone's address. 
Other names in her book range from Oscar award-winning actors such as Robert De Niro and singers such as Prince. She even had hustler publisher Larry Flint listed in her book. Bonnie cast a wide net when it came to her list of celebrities she had interest in. Dukes of Hazzard star James Best, comedians Pat McCormick and Will Jordan, singers Chuck Berry, Lou Christie and Frankie Valli. She claimed to have dated Valley when she was a teenager, but he's vehemently denied that. She also had the phone number of Dean Martin. She managed to meet him one night at Hamburger Hamlet in Hollywood, where the aging singer sat at the same table every night for the last decade of his life. Bonnie's extensive travels and extravagant trips all around the country, evenings at nightclubs, fancy hotels and bribes to get information on celebrity locations were all financed by means of her mail order business, a string of sham marriages, credit card frauds, identity thefts, and trumped up lawsuits. Eventually these fraudulent activities would catch up with her and she started racking up some arrests. In 1989, Bonnie was arrested in Memphis on a drug possession charge. In 1995, she was arrested for attempting to pass two bad checks from the account of a Memphis recording company totaling $200,000. She ended up plea bargaining to avoid jail time and was fined $1,000 and sentenced to work on a labor farm every weekend for three years. In 1998, she was arrested in Little Rock, Arkansas for being in possession of over 30 different types of IDs including driver's licenses and social security cards. She used the IDs to open various post office boxes in order to continue running her lonely heart scam. Bonnie was also rampant with her scams throughout the 90s. She financed quite the nightlife using other people's identities she had stolen and opened credit card accounts with. She had also started receiving social security checks in a variety of different names and in order to get them cashed at that time, all you needed was an ID with a name that matched. Another way Bonnie supplemented her income was with fraudulent lawsuits. She made a habit of visiting her attorney relatively frequently with some kind of personal injury case, such as a slip and fall in a supermarket or something similar to that. I want to back up for a moment and talk a little bit more about Bonnie's identity theft schemes. She didn't just steal random people's identities. She stole the identities of friends and friends of friends and acquaintances. One of Bonnie's victims came forward in 2004 to talk about what happened to her life after Bonnie got a hold of one of her old ID cards. The victim, Sylvia Simon, said Bonnie having stolen her ID pretty much destroyed her credit rating and good name. Sylvia had once been married to a friend of Bonnie's, Robert Stefanel. Their marriage ended in 1982, after which Robert had moved to Tennessee and ended up marrying the youngest sister of Jerry Lee Lewis, Linda Gale. Not surprisingly, Bonnie at some point decided to inject herself into the relationship by seducing Robert, which led Linda to throwing him out. Amongst the things he left behind was an old ID card of Sylvia's. Bonnie offered Linda $500 for the ID card, which she accepted, and Bonnie subsequently opened up an assortment of credit cards, running up a tremendous amount of debt in Sylvia's name. For years, Sylvia had been aware of the identity theft problem, but she had no idea it was Bonnie who was the culprit. She had even made a number of police reports about it in 1999, but apparently nothing could be done about it. Even when Bonnie had been arrested and had given the false name of Sylvia Stefano, Sylvia still wasn't made aware of the fact that it was Bonnie. Using Sylvia's name and the ID she had acquired from Linda, Bonnie had been able to obtain a new driver's license, set up bank accounts, rent post office boxes, operate her mail order business, and open credit accounts, all of which as Sylvia would put it, basically ruined her life. 
If we were to sit here and look back at all of these things Bonnie had done throughout her adult life, the shady business scams, the marriages of convenience, the fraudulent checks, the countless identity thefts, it's hard not to pass judgment on the woman. How many of us have been victims of a con or have been swindled? How many of us have had our identity stolen? Even worse if you've been cheated or ripped off by someone you knew. The breach of trust can be hurtful. It can also be infuriating, I'm certain. It's hard not to imagine that someone out there whose good name and identity had been fraudulently stolen and used by Bonnie could have been so angry towards her. So much so that could they have possibly wanted to seek out revenge? She preyed on her friends and friends of friends when it came to her identity theft exploits. How infuriated could it make some of them? Any of them? Could this have been seen as a plausible motive for someone to do Bonnie harm? Anything is possible. Back to the timeline of this tale. When Bonnie finished up her sentence for the writing of bad checks conviction in Tennessee and her friendship with Jerry Lee Lewis was pretty much over and done with, she figured it was time to move on to bigger and better places. And if you're starstruck and celebrity obsessed, what better place to head to than to the land of fame and stardom, Hollywood, California. It was this move to California that put her pursuit of celebrities into high gear. As I mentioned earlier, she had her sights set on several high-profile celebrities, none of which really developed into anything beyond the stories Bonnie would relate to people, including the one of her having dated Frankie Valli when she was a teenager. There was one celebrity that was relatively easy to get to at the time, for reasons I will explain. His name, Christian Brando, the eldest son of legendary Academy Award-winning actor Marlon Brando. Let's talk a little bit about Christian Brando for a few minutes. If you aren't familiar with Christian, you may be familiar with his father, Marlon Brando. He's been in some films you may have heard of, A Streetcar Named Desire, Viva Zapata, Julius Caesar, On the Waterfront, Sayonara, The Godfather, The Last Tango in Paris, and A Dry White Season, all of which he was nominated for an Academy Award, two of which he won, Best Actor for On the Waterfront and The Godfather. Marlon Brando was not only well known for his acting abilities, but also for his tumultuous personal life and large number of wives, girlfriends, and children. He's known to have fathered at least 16 children, three of whom were adopted. Some sources have claimed he's fathered as many as 17 children, possibly even more. Marlon married actress Anna Kashfi in 1957, and they had one son, Christian, on May 11, 1958. They divorced in 1959. Christian was shuttled back and forth between his mother and father for most of his early life. His parents grew increasingly hostile and abusive towards one another and were engaged in a lingering custody battle over Christian. The 12-year-long custody battle, along with his mother's out-of-control temper attributed to drugs and alcohol abuse, not surprisingly had a major long-term effect on Christian. Marlon eventually won custody of him when he was 13 years old. Even at the time, Marlon had been known to describe Christian as a basket case of emotional disorder. As it turns out, Marlon was somewhat of a distant father who spent little time with Christian after he had gained custody of the boy. He was raised mostly by nannies and servants he moved between Hollywood and Tetiora, a private island Marlon purchased near Tahiti. Christian's father, 
continued having relationships with several women with whom he fathered numerous children. Some years later, when talking about his childhood, Christian had said that his family kept changing shape. He would sit down at the breakfast table and say, Who are you? In 1972, while his father was abroad in France filming The Last Tango in Paris, Christian was actually kidnapped by his mother from his school. She brought him to a group of friends in Baja, California, Mexico, to whom she promised to pay $10,000 if they hid him away there. The deal between his mother and her friends quickly crumbled when she refused to pay them the money she had promised, so they hid Christian away from her as well. Marlon himself ended up hiring a team of private investigators who were able to track Christian down and rescue him from those hiding him in Mexico. Christian's mother was arrested at the border after being pulled over for drunk driving and disorderly behavior. Marlon was subsequently awarded sole custody of Christian. As a teen, Christian struggled in high school and ended up dropping out. He began abusing drugs and alcohol. Although he did do some acting on occasion, he was not interested in being in the spotlight. It would basically be living in his father's shadow. He eventually would leave home and go to the state of Washington to live with some friends of the family, a decision his father would eventually approve of and support. Marlon would visit him relatively regularly, and then when Christian was 22, Marlon purchased a remote cabin for him where he could be alone and practice his artistic welding. Christian would spend half his time at his cabin in Washington and half his time at his father's residence in Hollywood Hills. Being the oldest of Marlon's children, Christian grew fiercely protective of all of his siblings, but especially of his half-sister, Cheyenne, one of two children Marlon had with his third wife, a Tahitian actress he met while filming Mutiny on the Bounty. While growing up, Marlon did not allow Cheyenne or her brother to come to the United States. He felt that because they were so used to the isolated lifestyle on the island of Tahiti, they would have a difficult time adjusting to the fast-paced life in the States. Cheyenne, as a child, adored her father. She even bragged about him being such a well-known, famous actor. But as she got into her teen years, her feelings towards him began to shift as she realized he wasn't really keeping them in Tahiti because it was safer for them there. He was doing it because he was ignoring her and her brother, and he really didn't want them around. He rarely came to the island, maybe once a year, and he really didn't seem to care if he saw the two of them or not when he did visit. She came to the conclusion that he really didn't want them. Like older brother Christian, Cheyenne too dropped out of high school and began abusing drugs and alcohol. However, during the same time, she was able to begin a relatively successful modeling career. However, in 1989, Cheyenne was involved in a very serious car accident. Her father was in Toronto filming The Freshman when she requested to come see him. When he refused, she became so enraged and disoriented that while she was driving, she crashed her Jeep. She sustained a broken jaw, a deep laceration under her eye, and a torn ear. Marlon immediately flew Cheyenne to Los Angeles to undergo some extensive reconstructive and cosmetic surgery, but the damage to her face was done. The car accident effectively ended her modeling career. In the years following the accident, Cheyenne struggled with bouts of severe depression and made a number of attempts at suicide. While all of this was going on, Cheyenne began dating a man named Dag Drolet, the son of Jacques Drolet, a member of the Tahitian parliament. The Brandos and the Drolets had been longtime friends, and that was how the two met. In 1989, Cheyenne was pregnant with their child 
and at the request of her father, the couple moved to the United States and into Marlin's Mulholland Drive home to await the birth of their child. Things did not go as planned for Cheyenne and Dag. On May 16, 1990, Dag was fatally shot by Christian at their father's home. Christian insisted that the shooting was an accident. As he claimed earlier in the evening, Cheyenne told him that Dag was physically abusive towards her. As I said earlier, Christian was extremely protective of Cheyenne, especially at this time while she was pregnant. So later in the evening, according to Christian, he confronted Dag about the abuse Cheyenne accused him of. At some point during this confrontation, Christian brandished a gun, and in a struggle with Dag, who tried to take the gun from him, he claims it accidentally went off, fatally shooting Dag in the head. Christian was immediately placed into custody and subsequently charged with the first-degree murder of Dag Jolet. Los Angeles County prosecutors attempted to subpoena Cheyenne to testify at her brother's murder trial as her account of the evening's events would be crucial in proving that the shooting was premeditated. However, and not surprisingly, Cheyenne refused to testify. Not only did she refuse, she fled and returned to Tahiti. A little over a month later, on June 26, 1990, Cheyenne gave birth to a son, Tuki Brando. After the birth of her son, Cheyenne attempted suicide twice, and so Marlin had her hospitalized for drug detoxification in a psychiatric facility. And by December of 1990, Cheyenne was declared by the courts as being mentally disabled and deemed unable to testify at Christian's murder trial. So, without Cheyenne's testimony, it was determined by prosecutors that they would no longer be able to prove premeditation in the shooting death of Dag Jolet. So Christian was offered a plea bargain, which he took. He pled guilty to the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. He ended up serving a total of five years, with three years of probation. Some years after his release, in an interview he gave, Christian said that he started to doubt that Cheyenne's accusations of physical abuse against Dag were true due to her mental instability issues that she was dealing with at the time. He deeply regretted taking her at her word. Oh, and a side note to this side note of the story, Christian's attorney was Robert Shapiro of O.J. Simpson's Dream Team fame. Cheyenne, sadly and quickly went into a downward spiral. In the years following Dag's death and Christian's trial, her mental health steadily declined. She reportedly went to drug rehabilitation facilities and psychiatric hospitals. She would also go on to publicly accuse her father of molesting her and accuse him of being complicit in Dag's death both accusations Marlin vehemently denied. Cheyenne was later on formally diagnosed with schizophrenia. She became increasingly isolated from her friends and family, and eventually she lost custody of her son to her mother, who ended up raising him in Tahiti. On April 16, 1995, Cheyenne Brando was finally successful in her numerous attempts to commit suicide. She hanged herself in her mother's home in Tahiti. She was 25 years old. A bright side to this saga is, Cheyenne's son, Tuki, by all accounts, is doing quite well for himself today. He's a successful French Polynesian model and is currently the face of Versace's menswear. He's also studying medicine in France. So, with all of that, we can now circle back to how Bonnie manages to fit into all of this Brando drama. For Bonnie, a truly celebrity-obsessed fan, who better to go after than the son of the godfather himself? 
When the news of Christian's murder swept through all the news media outlets, word quickly got to Bonnie, and she took note. She thought Christian was handsome. She desperately wanted to connect with him. And with him being in jail, this was perfect for her. He was a Brando, and he was basically hers for the taking. She convinced herself, despite being in jail for manslaughter, it wasn't him that had the issues, it was his family. He was obviously the misunderstood one, and she was going to be the one that would get him. Bonnie sent him letters while he was behind bars, and of course, she included pictures. Christian got her letters, and he replied to them. Unlike Robert Downey Jr., who Bonnie was also sending letters to while he was in jail, but he did not respond. So when Christian was released from prison, he and Bonnie quickly got together. But the so-called relationship was spoken about by no one. Nobody outside of the Brando family was to talk about what was going on between Bonnie and Christian. Anybody who did speak about the two did so anonymously. The fact that the two knew each other had been confirmed, yes. They were in fact together for a while. According to some reports, Bonnie was the one who supplied Christian with drugs during this time, and that was basically her hook. Bonnie would visit him at his cabin in Washington, where he stayed in between his stints in rehab after his release from prison. It was relatively common knowledge that they were up there seeing one another throughout 1999. In the fall of that year, Bonnie learned that she was pregnant. She told Christian that the baby was his. According to a number of sources, Christian was excited by the news. He was ready to embrace becoming a father. It might have been the thing that he needed to fill a void in his life. People who knew Christian could see that it really gave him something to look forward to, something to live for for a change. On June 2nd, 2000, Bonnie gave birth to a daughter named Christian Shannon Brando. Christian picked the name, undoubtedly to Bonnie's approval. It stood as a resounding proclamation as to her proximity to a celebrity as she did with her third child, Jerry Lee. And, as it turns out, just like baby Jerry Lee wasn't Jerry Lee's child, baby Christian Brando wasn't Christian Brando's either. She was the daughter of actor Robert Blake. And with that, we're going to bring part one of the victim blame game to a close. Part two and the conclusion will be available in one week when we delve into Bonnie Lee's relationship with Robert Blake and the events that followed. So stay tuned for that. I would like to take the time to say thank you to everyone who posted pictures of the stickers I sent to you guys. I'm so happy to have those for you. And I still have a lot more, so shoot me an email if you would like me to send you some at CaliforniaPod at yahoo.com. I hope to eventually be able to order better, fancier vinyl stickers to pass out to fans, so hopefully in time I'll be able to do that for you guys. As for now, I'm still looking to donate any proceeds from California Dreaming's Patreon to the Joyful Child Foundation. I do have one Patreon supporter so far, so if you're able to donate even a dollar a month, we're looking for different causes to donate to or possibly begin to develop Patreon perks for those who are able to support the show. Any help is greatly appreciated. I'd also like to take the time to thank you all for the great reviews on iTunes, as well as all of the positive feedback and comments in social media. It's the best, most rewarding part of all of this, and that you all are able to enjoy this show really means a lot to me. So if you haven't already left a review on iTunes or on Facebook or Stitcher, please do so. The reviews and ratings help give the show a little bit more visibility. I'd also like to take the time to thank all the people I know through the dog park 
and my animal's Facebook page, who took a chance on listening to California Dreaming, who weren't necessarily podcast listeners before. These are people who knew me because my pets are kind of a big deal, and they're big fans. It's been amazing to see and know people who weren't podcast listeners become podcast listeners because of California Dreaming. We all know it isn't for everyone, so thank you to all of you who took the time to learn how to download and listen to the show. I also wanted to remind you about the August campaign for Two Pods a Day. It aims to introduce podcast listeners to two independent podcasts every day for the month of August. We hope to give visibility to some of the great indie podcasts out there that you may not have heard of before. Two Pods a Day encourages you to listen more and listen indie. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook on the California Dreaming Discussion page, on Twitter at California Pod, and on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. Thank you again for listening to part one, and until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>